while those folk are stepping out, let's take our Bibles. Let's head to Revelation 11 as we're going to continue a study and right into Revelation 12. While you're turning there, let's just do a little bit of breaking up, waking up this morning. Name an animal or food-related smell that people quickly recognize and they recoil at it. Skunk's going to be number one. What else? Vinegar? Okay. What'd you say? Manure? Okay. Limburger? Okay. Here's what they said. Garlic, onions, ammonia, rotten eggs, and skunk. Uh, name a job a clumsy person should be fired from. A surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. If, if your doctor is clumsy, yeah. Okay. Anything else? What'd you say? In a China store, that would be, that would be equivalent. Uh, good. What's that? A waiter, especially if they're your waiter. Yeah. Here's what they said. Ice cream shop, acrobat. An acrobat that's clumsy just seems like such a contradiction, doesn't it? The dancer, construction worker, surgeon, and number one was a food server. Name a reason why someone's voice might sound funny or different. Smoking would do it? Okay. Laryngitis? Puberty? A cold? Here's what they said. Just woke up. My voice is normal when I wake up, right? Yeah, it's quiet. It's quiet. <laughs> There's an accident. They're drunk. They're puberty, helium, illness. Ah, uh, my, oh, my. We will talk. Name something that causes people to laugh. Deb busting on me. <laughs> what else? Kids? Jokes? Anything else come to mind? Did you say sermons? Sermons? <laughs> what, what is this? Pick on Wayne Day? I'll wear a badge. Hit me. <laughs> yeah. Good pranks, clowns, funny movie, TV, being tickled, and jokes. Name a type of cheese. This is put in just because you said Limburger a moment ago. Name a type of cheese with a funny name. Munster? There's a Munster cheese. I don't, I don't know about cheese. I don't know about foods. Okay, so I just... I eat them. She puts them before me. I eat them. That's just... What else? What? What? What is it? Is it real? Yeah, it's real. It's real. Okay. I don't know if he was just giving me a hard time. <laughs> Everybody else is. So I, Chris wanted to get in on the act. <laughs> Any other weird sounding cheeses? Gouda. What? Gouda. I thought you said Buddha. Gouda. Okay. Gouda. Gouda. Okay. Head. <laughs> is it good? No. Uh, okay. These are the names that came from the store. I don't even know how to say them. So I'm just putting them up. She just said, that is so good. You just piped up. That is so nasty. <laughs> How do you say it? I'm, you guys are so good. Oh, my, you guys are good. Are we hungry now? Okay, the lunch is coming. Okay, who are some of the different characters so far in the book of Revelation? Who are some of the different characters that John has seen in his visions? He's seen Jesus. Okay, there's the two witnesses. Um, are they in heaven? They're pictured on earth, but they're in the visions. The angels are there. The 24 elders. Okay, those who are martyred, the hundred, uh, are they in heaven? I don't know if, I, if they're up here because, I'm, because yeah, yeah. He sees them in the vision, but the ones, the characters within heaven. Okay, the throne sitter. Do we cover them all? I think we got most of them. Okay, throne sitter, Jesus, you said. The, uh, the beast around the throne, which would be angels, and then the martyred saints, and the seven spirits of God that are pictured. We're hitting Revelation 12. You're going to be surprised if you've not read this passage. There's another character presented to be in heaven, and that is 
Satan himself. He's going to be portrayed in this passage as being in heaven uh, and coming out of heaven. And some of you are going to wonder, how is this possible? So let us explain a little bit of where we're at. Okay, In the passage that we're coming to, it is one of the, one of the background information passages. <clears throat> in chapter 11, if you look down and you'll see that in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, the seventh, uh, the seventh trumpet is going to sound. When the seventh trumpet sounds, this is in the last form of all the different judgments that are taking place at the end of the tribulation period. And what he does is he basically summarizes in those few verses what happens or what the seventh trumpet brings about. He doesn't go into all the details of the process, but he basically summarizes and says that when this trumpet sounds, all the kingdoms, kingdom of earth is going to be united under one person's kingdom, and that is Jesus Christ. The earth dwellers will initially resist the Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom, but he does return. He does establish his kingdom. And then when he establishes his kingdom at that moment, right at that, in the conjunction with that, there's going to be a major judgment of all the people who are alive at that point. Jesus referred to this in Matthew 25 as the sheep goat judgment, where all the peoples from around the world will be gathered as he comes in the clouds, the angels will gather him, and he will say, sit on my right hand, or be cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for Satan and his demons. And so John, in chapter 11, summarizes that, brings us to the completion or the totality of the seventh trumpet. Then he's going to pick up in chapter 15 and put in a lot more details that coincide. What he does in the middle chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, is he gives a lot of background information to what led up to that, what was going on before that moment. And so he gives us details, and from these details, we're going to learn how it got so very, very bad that the people of the earth are totally in rebellion and resistance to Jesus Christ coming and setting up a utopia. He's going to explain how they got so stubborn in their resistance to Christ, even though that they know all that what's happening, the judgments are from God. And basically, he's going to be giving us justification of why those people who are living at that time who reject Christ, why they, quote-unquote, deserve not to get into the heaven or be cast into the, um, why it's a just judgment to cast them into hell. And so he's giving us information about the spiritual character of the people and why they got so bad, what's been going on behind the scenes. And so chapter 12 opens up with a vision that he sees what's happening in the spirit world. He's given us a summary of what's ha- going to happen in the physical world. Now he gives us a, uh, an idea of what's been going on behind the scenes in the spiritual world that people like Job, who had all the physical problems, had no clue what was going on in heaven at that time. And so he's going to give us the information to say, okay, I see a vision, and in this vision, he's going to list out several different characters that he sees. He sees a woman, he sees a great red dragon, he sees a man-child or a male child, he sees Michael and the angels, he's going to see as well a remnant of the woman's seed. So what we need to do is break down and try to figure out who are these, and if you read through it, you can your, your common sense interpretation, which you're basing on, a literal interpreter of the Bible is going to use common sense interpretation. Common sense means sometimes they use pictures. They use analogies. Sometimes Jesus says, I am the door. That doesn't mean he's a physical door. Common sense tells you what he meant was... He's the, he's the entryway. Yeah, excellent. So that's common sense. That's the literal interpretation. Sometimes when it says literal numbers like 144,000, we have no reason to say it's symbolic. But this text, as you read it through, he makes it very clear. It's symbolism. It's representation. In fact, he's going to name people towards the end of the chapter, the vision, and identify them that you're going to say, oh, that, car- that, that dragon is really so-and-so, but he's pictured as a dragon. So let, let's read through it, and then we'll dissect some of this. We're in chapter 12. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of seven of 12 stars, excuse me. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. <coughs> 
he drew, his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should, number, that they should uh, feed her there a thousand two hundred and sixty days, which is equal to... Three and a half years, 42 months, or half of the tribulation. Numbers, again, all these numbers, there's no reason to think them symbolic because they all coincide with what we read in chapter 11 was 42 months, which is, again, 1,260 days or three and a half years. Um, there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called devil, Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast into the earth and his out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them day, uh, them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast onto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great evil, uh, eagle, eagle, excuse me, that she may fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for three and a half. A time, one, times two, and then half a time. Three and a half, which again, all this fits together, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was angry with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Obviously symbolism here, uh, quite a bit. And so we're going to break down and just talk about the woman. The summary of this is where we're at, we're in the last three and a half years. He's given given the timetable already. We're in the last three and a half years, and he's going to tell us about some of the different characters or people, nations, whatever, uh, that are really active at this time. What we read about the woman is very simple. We read that the woman is a sign or a great wonder. All that means is, uh, is that this idea, in this cha- in the chapters, mega, which is your great, shows up multiple times. This is the first of seven of those occasions. The, um, the idea is used in the visions of something that is spectacular. The word for sign, which is going to uh, bring, be in here, is the idea of something, the, the simeon idea, the sign, is something that is of great significance, um, something that could be in great in portion in size. And so you have this significant individual. Let's leave it with that. This really important character within what's happening in all of this activity. This important character is clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. We read she has 12 stars. She's pictured as about to give birth. She's to a male child who's going to rule with a rod of iron. You already know who that is, right? Without us even studying, yay? Who's the male child that rules with a rod of iron? It's Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah. If you don't remember, three weeks ago we dealt with Psalm 2. That's the quote from Psalm 2 where he's going to take control of the nations with a rod of iron. The idea, he's going to snatch it from all the world rulers. And so this is that character predicted in the Old Testament as being the Messiah, the, Psalm 2 called him, the anointed one. And so we understand that's Jesus Christ. So in this vision, there is a woman giving birth to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is going to eventually take over rule. This makes perfect sense. That, that establishes your context. Because in chapter 11, the last few verses, was giving details about him coming and taking over the world. 
So this is explaining a little bit about the one coming to take over the world. Where he came from, what he's like, what happens to him, etc. The woman is being pursued by this great dragon. And so clearly with all of this, we're going to be understanding their symbolism here, which brings us to the question, who is the woman? Who's the lady that's here? Okay. Okay, some, let's, let's give you the three possibilities that are going to be, that are thrown out as you do Bible studies. Uh, some will say it's the Virgin Mary, that Mary is pictured here as being a great sign, a great wonder in heaven. Uh, which group in particular would want to make it Mary? Yeah, because of th- their worship of Mary. Okay, so it's the Virgin Mary. Some say this is the Bride of Christ. okay. That one's really tough because the Bride of Christ isn't going isn't to be playing a role until the end of the tribulation. And the Bride of Christ is us. And we didn't birth Christ. Christ birthed us. Okay, so that seems to be a contradiction. The one that most of you piped up is you said it was the nation of Israel, which I agree 100% with you, that this is a picture of the nation of Israel. And you might pause and say, well, why would that, why would... They're, they use this symbolism for Israel. Uh, the reason for this is in the context, in chapter 11, if you page back, chapter 11 talked about the temple. Chapter 11 talked about what was going on with the two, pro, with the two witnesses who are from what group of people? The Jews. And where are they ministering? In Jerusalem, okay. And uh, then it gives us that information. And when we go into chapter, back into chapter 11, where he talks about, look at verse 13. He talks about the great earthquake. He talks about a third. Who are, who's he referring to? Where is that taking place? Where's the great earthquake? Where are, where are people, a remnant being spared? It's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem doing, so he's talking in context all about the Jewish people and what's happening with them in that time period. And so it follows along that it would make sense. And if you go back in the Old Testament, frequently uh, Israel is referred to as a woman. Um, she, is, she is described as a woman, not only any woman, but a woman who was married to or betrothed to Jehovah God. Do you remember how it comes up frequently? She hath played the role of a harlot and committed what sin? Frequently, spiritually. What sin did Israel get accused of frequently by the prophets? Adultery. Okay. And so it isn't surprising, and it's very consistent with Old Testament, that she was frequently symbolized as a woman. In fact, there are several Old Testament passages that even portray her not as just a normal woman, but a woman who was going to bring forth a child, who was pregnant with a child, who was the Messiah child. And so this isn't an abnormal, unusual type of a, type of a vision or an explanation. It's very consistent with all the Old Testament prophecies. As well... Uh, What happens in her appearance where the sun is brought in, where the moon is brought in, that same type of picture of Israel was used in one of Israel's founding families. Do you remember when? There was a vision given to, to an individual, and he saw, and this was one of the early patriarchs, when the nation was being developed, and he saw his parents as those two great lights, and all the other stars round about. Joseph and his dream that he saw with his parents. And so he saw this when he was a young boy before he ends up in Egypt. He saw all this taking place. And so um, you have that explanation given back in Genesis where you have the sun, moon, and the 12 stars. In Genesis, I think it's, yeah, it's 37. And so this parallels that prophecy or that vision that Joseph... And remember what happens with the stars and the moon and the elements? In Joseph's dream, what do they all do? 
They bow down to him. Um, but the representation of that patriarchal family which, from which the 12 tribes come. So that makes sense. Israel comes through Messiah. That makes perfect sense. That he's Jewish, that Christ was born that way, and so he's born of, of uh, the nation of Israel. Satan, historically, the dragon in this picture, is, is trying to destroy Israel. Is that true historically in the Old Testament? Multiple times? Just one or two times? Okay, over and over and over again, Satan uh, tried to attack. The sun and moon, they would, uh, they would be, obviously, you would understand them, as being exalted in the sense of the lights, the, the impact. The 12 crowns, you would understand very quickly, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So we have this woman. This woman that is clearly a picture of the tribes. The great red dragon is going to try to destroy her. And then he gets evicted out of heaven instead of destroying her. He gets evicted out of heaven. And when he's evicted, he's going to try to persecute her. He's going to come after her. She is given wings and flies into the wilderness. Which, where did Jesus tell the Jews to run when they see the abomination of desolation? Told them to take flight and go into the into the wilderness, okay? And so they flee into the wilderness where she's going to be nourished and cared for. The dragon tries to destroy her, and once again, she's miraculously protected from the dragon, who at this time is filled with what? Great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And so this pictures that she is protected in a very supernatural, uh, unusual way for a period of three and a half years. Again, we're talking about the second half of the tribulation after Antichrist in the abomination of desolation has put himself on the throne um, by sitting in the temple on the Holy of, in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant, claiming to be God. Those who do not worship him, they're going to be destroyed. And the people that he is definitely afterward, after and trying to destroy are the Jews. And so this is a picture of how God is at work doing what? protecting Israel. Why? They're his chosen people. They're his chosen people. And if they get annihilated, what does that mean? God's, God's inept. God's inept. Because he's told them they are going to inherit the kingdom of earth. And so this is that supernatural protection that's provided by God. This is a vision. Basically, of a lot of history. If you break it down, jump, just kind of gloss through. Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Those are what are, in, what's, in what place in history are they? When did, when did Satan bring down one-third of the angels? When he fell. We're going all the way back to Genesis. Okay, when did he start persecuting the woman? It, all the way back in, in her, as she was trying to be organized. I mean, who was behind Pharaoh's, you know, and the, Jew, and the Egyptians trying to destroy the... Okay, it would be Satan. So, if you, if you kind of break it down, verses 1 through 5 is more historical in this vision. And there's huge gaps of time in here, okay, that are portrayed, that are just stated... Because, I'll give you, for instance, a gap of time. Um, she bring, verse 5. She brings forth a man-child who is to rule, and the child was caught up into, unto God. When, just verse 5. When was the, the man-child born? Give me, give me approximate dates. 4 B.C. Okay. When was he caught up to God? Well, 28, 29, Yeah. Okay, so there's a, there's a gap of time right within that singular verse. Does that pose a problem for you? No. This is a summary. Okay? And so he's giving some of those details. And besides, have we already been given real specific details in previous Revelation? That story's been recounted. So he, here he's giving some of what's led up to this and what's going to go on. But he's bringing in all the characters that are very critical in this. The man-child is a critical character in helping to protect the woman from heaven. And so he's given us that detail. So 
putting it together, the woman represents the nation. The prophecy is picturing, most of it is picturing the second half of the tribulation. That's where it's focusing on. It is uh, telling us that Israel will be supernaturally protected and preserved from what and by whom. Which, this is an easy one for us, but let's do the details. A great red dragon. So you look at the text, and, you, and he's described by the words that we just read. Okay, the words that we put down, we'd say, okay, he's called another wonder in heaven. Okay, another, another significant character. Don't get caught off by saying wonder means awesome as in description with God. Wonder means something significant. Something that is impacting. Does Satan play an impacting role in history? Oh, absolutely. So we get that information. He's powerful. He's unusual. He stands out in the significant uh, role. In this text, he has access into heaven until when? Until he's cast out. Has he been cast out? In the chronology of the story, okay, was Satan cast out of heaven altogether when he fell? No, no, not according to the chronology of this text. Remember, there's gaps of time, but at the same time, he isn't cast out until sometime after the man-child is caught up into heaven. And so we think and go and say, okay, there's a war in heaven and he's given us some of this. The woman flees into the wilderness that she should be fed 1,260 days in verse 6. He's putting us into the time frame of the tribulation and at the beginning of that second half of the tribulation. And so he makes it very clear that this woman is being chased by Satan when Satan comes down to earth. And we know, therefore, his casting out of heaven had to be before the beginning of the second half of the tribulation, because she's protected 1,260 days, a time, a times, and a half a time. So sometime before that middle of the tribulation, Satan is cast out. And so the question is, when does this happen? Well, according to what we know, which, oh, come back to it. Let me, let me move on. He's called a great red dragon. Red, y'all would picture its color of death, its color of blood. Ferocious creature. The word that's used here, it's translated elsewhere, like in the book of Job and back in Genesis. The word for dragon is sea monster in our English. So it's some type of creature. Um, Again, I don't know all the details. Dragon fits as well, some type of lizard character. And he's called the old serpent. So this is his, his name, his character, the way he's presented. I'm not sure how that all plays out. He has seven crowns upon his seven heads. To us right now in the study, that isn't impacting. This will introduce us to other information where down the road in the other chapters we're going to talk about this idea of this creature who has crowns, power, control. He is going to, uh, he is going to be involved with other prophecy later on where you have seven crowns, seven heads. So I don't think this is, this is uh, equating to a lot of information before Part of this is giving us information we're going to hang on to for the future. The same with the ten horns. That's going to be, I think, in reference of his power, his control, be what he does with the future governments, the old governments, and the ten-nation confederacy. So for now, we'll, we'll just put it that he is t- closely tied with human governments, past, present, and future. And we'll explain all that as we get further down the road. Which, by the way, then brings in... it totally coincides with chapter 11, verse 15 that we looked at two weeks ago, where he says the kingdom of the earth becomes Christ's kingdom, a singular. All of them were under Satan's domination, as pictured here, and we'll we'll develop even further. Historically, the dragon drew down one-third of the stars. I think what this is picturing is that stars in the Old Testament were who or what? They were angels, okay? The angels were called stars. In fact, in this text, he makes it very clear when he makes that he says in verse 7, the dragon and his angels. And so it's not a stretch for us to say, okay, that one-third of the stars were one-third of angels. Angels was used, I'm sorry, stars was used of angels in the book of Psalms and elsewhere. Um, so he's responsible for dragging down one-third of the angels back in creation days 
when sometime before the fall, I don't know when, neither do you, sometime after he was created in the angels and before the fall, Satan rebelled. Isaiah um, 28, he rebelled. No, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, or vice versa. Um, they, he rebelled and he was, uh, he and his angels then were given limited limits Satan still wasn't cast out of heaven, as we'll see. He's very influential. He's a bad guy. He's opposing God. He and his angels are fighting against Michael and God's angels. So this war and this battle is taking place, which we'll get to in a couple minutes. The great red dragon, you know who it is. It's already stated in the passage. He's given all these different names He's get that, are, that are used in other scriptures in here talking about who he is and how he is so evil. And all those descriptions, they just say to you, what? Good, bad. Okay, your friend? No, your enemy. Okay. Um, reliable? No, why not? He's a liar. He's a liar. And he's deceiving the world. This is giving information how the people get so bad in the last three and a half years. Because Satan is even more active in that time than he is in our day today. With dealing with people. Far more active. And far more, not only active, but far more aggressive. And you and I go, how can he get more aggressive? Okay. But it will happen. And so, uh, what does he do? He's ready to attack the woman and the child. Did that happen historically? Did he, when the man-child was born, did he operate in a way of trying to destroy the man-child? Soon as he was born? Within a short time? Who? When? Herod's slaughter of the innocents. Very good. Okay, verses 7 through 10, he's involved with a war with the angels in heaven. Uh, that takes place. And as this, what do we know about this war? Um, we know that there's been opposition all the way through history. But now there's been battles. Now we're going to come to a crucial battle in this spiritual warfare. We're going to have a pivotal battle, uh, World War II, Pacific War, um, Battle of Midway. All of a sudden things changed. You know, and there was a shift in victories uh, in the European uh, arena. There was certain battles that all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, it was the shift. And so this seems to be a climactic battle. Doesn't mean he is destroyed. He is still active. But all of a sudden, things are starting to change uh, and will change. And so he fought with or waged war. If you look at the text and the way the author is writing it, he's saying there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And then what does he do in the next phrase? Do you have a second phrase? Yes, no? Verse 7. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. What's your next phrase? The dragon fought and his angels. Well, we could have figured that out from the first phrase. But it's stated twice that there is this fighting. Because this is an intense type of thing. He wants to catch our attention. That, and literally, it's waging war. There is war that's taking place. The present tense indicates that it's not a quick, you know, five-minute skirmish, but this is a huge battle. Um, it's between God's angels, and the, the language in the original by many scholars, they say it seems to imply that Michael and his angels are, on, are taking more of a defensive because Satan and his demons initiated the attacks. That they, were try that they were now, at this moment, they have been fighting all along, but this is their moment to make the big push. To all of a sudden try something offensively. Why? Could it be that Satan is emboldened by everything that's happened for the last three and a half years? In the beginning of the tribulation. I mean, from, from, the, from uh, your point of view, has it looked good for the Christians the first three and a half years? What happened to many of the believers? The fifth seal. They're martyred. Okay, what happened to Jerusalem? Jerusalem's been taken over by this point. Okay. Um, what type of worship is being done around the world? It's evil, but in particular... What's that? Okay. Remember, they even go back to idolatry. 
Very blatant idolatry. We talked about this. And do people know God is, God is at work? Do they understand the judgments are from heaven? And what's their response? There, there is no... Re- it looks like, wow, things are really bad, 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 bad. We think they're bad now. Okay, This is really bad. It looks like it's really dark. And, and I'm not talking physical darkness. I mean the spiritual darkness looks like Satan's having a heyday. And Satan, Satan, does this embolden him? My question, does this embolden him to say, I'm going to go on the offensive. This is my chance. Okay? I think that's the, a strong possibility, I think. And so this is not the first time in the Bible that there was a physical struggle between their, these spiritual characters. There are times given elsewhere in Scripture that angels, bad and good, had, had conflicts. Do you remember any times that this happened? Do you remember when? It's in the book of Daniel. You're absolutely right, Ron. Yeah. Okay, Daniel chapter 10. Uh, Daniel's been, or 9. Daniel's been talking, uh, wanting to get information. And when the angel comes, he, the angel is going to make comment that he was hindered by one of the demons, one of the princes of the earth. And he says he is hindered at that point. And watch the phrasing. I think I have it up here. Until Michael came to help him. So Michael had to help this one messenger of God so that he could complete his task and Michael's assistance was to help him to finish out his task. So there was some type of physical, uh, I'm struggling with terms, physical conflict by the, within the spiritual realm, that they had some issues. Jude 9 tells us that Michael and Satan had a conflict. The body of Moses. Moses is dead. He's on top of the mount looking into the promised land, and he can't go in. Okay, And he dies on top of this mount. The, the people of Israel don't take his body with them. They carried the body of so-and-so into the promised land. Joseph. Okay, But they can't take the body. God takes care of the body of Moses. But Jude 9 tells us that Satan came at that time and he was in conflict with Michael over the possession of the body of Moses. Question. What in the world would Satan want to do with the body of Moses? What's that? Okay, and that's, that's as far as we can go. Yeah. Would he use it for deception? Would he? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I mean, do we know this? Can Satan take good things? Can Satan influence people to take good objects and... Use them in a bad way. Okay, Wednesday, if you weren't with us, Wednesday we're talking the commandments. We're talking about thou shalt not make any... Okay, and we pointed out that the Israel, the people of Israel, there was a couple really good things that were, that were given to them or made that they went a-whoring after. Anybody remember one of the couple of the items we mentioned? The snake on top of the pole. Do you remember that whole story? The snake on the pole, if you did what? If you looked upon it... You were healed. We pointed out from the Old Testament that the people of Israel, they started worshiping the snake on the pole and made it an icon. Do you remember something else that they took that they thought had superstitious power? The Ark of the Covenant. They would take it into battle. It did happen early under God's uh, control. But later on, without his permission, they take it out and they go against the Philistines thinking if the Ark is with us, and what happens? They lose, and the Philistines get the ark for an extended period of time. Um, we pointed out that Gideon made an ephod after he had defeated the Midianites. And the people go a-whoring after the ephod, that garment that he made and used in warfare, that they, they start worshiping it. Is it possible that people worship good relics? Okay. Now, I, yeah, let, let, me, let me do this tongue-in-cheek. Uh, is the ark a good thing? The Noah's ark. Is the ark a good thing? Do people, do people worship the slivers of the ark? If they got their hands on them, would that happen? I mean, historically, people already have claimed this. 
Historically, there's enough little slivers of the ark that you could probably make three of them, you know, that were passed around. They do that with the cross. You know, historically, they've gathered splinters of the cross. Was the cross, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, does the cross represent to us a good, a, a good work accomplished? Yes, it does. Okay, but all of a sudden, they start worshiping that thing rather than... Okay, could it be that Satan was going to do that with the body most? I don't know. But I, the conclusion is, if Satan wanted it, he wanted it for something bad. Okay, but he argues over it, and what happens in this text is Michael the archangel comes. And this is the text that we learn about Michael the archangel. The word archangel only shows up in Jude and in... Does it show up here? No, it doesn't. Okay, so that's the one time that it shows up in Jude. And then the only other time archangel shows up, you'll hear the trump, the voice of the archangel. They're the only two times it shows up in Scripture. Okay, that, that we have that phrase, archangel. And uh, with that in mind, all it, arch means just princely, powerful, somebody, a ruler. So he's an angel of some authority, some position in the classification of uh, the hierarchy of the angelhood. He's there. And by the way, angels did have a hierarchy. Who was the chief angel at the beginning? Satan was the chiefest of all the angels before he rebelled. And so... Um, the reason that I'm going to make this statement that it seems like Michael is the guardian angel of Israel is from the book of Daniel where it's, uh, it says, the great prince which stands for the children of your people. Talking to Daniel would be the Jews. So he has a special inclination to be able to protect. And remember we made this observation before. Demons and angels can be assigned to different na- territories or national groups. And so it seems Michael is, ma- is part of that assignment. And so Michael and, and uh, his leading God's angels and Satan leading his demons, they clash. It seems like an aggressive attack by Satan to try to overthrow and take over heaven. How long the war lasts, we don't know. We don't know. We know that it, it's, it's the, Satan's beaten by the beginning of the second half of the tribulation. Before the three and a half years, the time, time, times, 42 months, the 1260 days, he's beaten and he's cast down. It seems to me that it coincides with that midpoint of the tribulation. It seems to me that uh, it would, that would make sense. Because it says that he knows that his time is short. And in this context, his short time would be three and a half years after ages and ages and ages of being able to work, all of a sudden he's cast down. And in that context, we have the time, time, times. We have the 1260 days. We have the 42 months in these two chapters. So it seems like at the midpoint of the tribulation, there's this battle. Satan is finally evicted from heaven and uh, he's defeated. The words are really interesting. I just want to highlight this because you, you got it all down pat. But it says in verse 8, they prevailed not, Satan. It says in verse 8, no longer any room for them in heaven. It says he was cast down, literally thrown down. It says in verse 9, his angels were cast out. So very emphatically, the author wants us to understand Satan got, yeah, he's whooped. He's whooped. Okay, he's beaten. He didn't win. And uh, so all of this is giving us indication. He loses this battle. He's out of heaven. And, uh, and, and what's interesting is he still is called the great dragon in one of the texts. Look through and he'll, that he is, it's almost like a play on words. It's almost tongue-in-cheek saying, the great dragon got beat. You, you call that, you know, when we say that, sarcasm, Right? That we would look and say, for all of his, his supposed greatness, he got, he got whooped. So Satan then, prior to the battle, here's, here's the rub for us. Prior to the battle, where does Satan have access to? He has access to heaven. Okay, and what does he do in heaven? He accuses the brethren. It's stated very clearly in this text. It's also mentioned as well. We, we see an illustration in Scripture of him accusing one of the brethren. 
to the book of Job, Job chapter 1. The only reason Job worships you is because... Yeah, you're good. You give him good, you give him lots of stuff. Okay. And so it's he's he's not only does he accuse by possibly pointing out our evil, he questions our motives for what we do. And so he's he's there accusing and by the way, there's a phrase described of Jesus Christ in 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 that fits right with this. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 well, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, and to, okay, then you jump down another verse, and it says in chapter 2, verse 1, we have a blank in heaven, an advocate, one who is our attorney that is defending us. And then it goes on to talk about Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus defending us in heaven? Because we're being accused. Okay. What's that? Yeah, and so Jesus Christ defends us as our great high priest, which is absolutely phenomenal that Jesus does. I don't know about you. I'm glad that Jesus is doing that ministry for me. Because since I've been saved, I've done enough to go back, you know, get taken my name, my name to be you know, crossed out of the book of life. Maybe you haven't, but I have not lived a 100% pure life in thought, word, deed, action. You know, I've struggled. I think I'm in the majority here, okay? And so I'm so thankful for the advocacy of Jesus Christ. So after this battle, he's cast down to the earth. Now, has he visited earth? Sure, he's been, he's been around on earth. When Jesus was tempted, who tempted him in the wilderness? Okay, so Satan has been... What's this mean he's cast down to the earth? It's not his first visit. What's that? Yeah, he's resigned, or is that the right word? Um, he's limited now to earth. Yeah, okay, so now this is... He, he can't go to heaven anymore. So if he's going to turn God away from God's people or turn God's people away from God, where's the realm that he can work in? The planet Earth. That's it. Can't do it in heaven anymore. So he comes down and he's warned. The earth, uh, earth dwellers are warned. He is coming on, down unto you, but the people in heaven add to it. He's not only showing up on earth, but what's he got with him? What's, what's in him? His great wrath. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not being clear. In verse 12, he's got this rage. He's got this thumos. He's got this uncontrolled rage and anger, vindictiveness, vengeance, that he comes down to the earth. And you know, on top of that, not only is he really, really ticked off and embarrassed and been beaten, but what does he also know? That complicates all of this. He knows his time is short. And so uh, he comes down with that great anger, that violent rage, and so he goes after the nation of Israel. We've already talked about why go after her. If I can wipe her out, I've proven God impotent, that God can't protect his own people. So while he is attacking Israel primarily, she is being supernaturally protected and carried in the wilderness where God is providing for her. And again, this brings us to the middle of the tribulation when all this is taking place. All of this agrees with Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, in the book of Daniel, it complements it completely. And I can't remember what Matthew 24 says right off the top of my head right now. Do you, none of you would ever have these moments where you just go brain dead. So, let's flip there. And let's, let me remind myself. What's Matthew 24? Oh, yeah, gotcha. Matthew 24. Listen to the text if you're not there. Middle of the tribulation. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, then let them which be in, Jeru in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to the house to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child and ready to uh, nurse the child in those days. Pray that your flight be not in the winter, nor in, neither in the Sabbath day. For then shall be great... Tribulation such as was not 
since the beginning of the world to this end nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh shall be saved. But for the elect's sake, they are shortened. And so it fits together that all of this is taking place in the middle. Jesus, uh, people are told. Now, um, John describes Satan's holocaust to the Jews at the very end, verse 15, as we kind of bring this to a wrapping up for this morning. What, does he, what words does he use that indicates to you this is really, really bad, what he's doing to the Jews? What wording do you see in verse 15? Any? Flood. Okay, this a torrent, okay? What does a flood, how would you describe a flood for the people that are in its path? Okay, you've got lots of words going that are excellent. How do you stop a flood? You don't. We, oh, I'm sorry, we don't. Okay, what do we do when there's a flood? <laughs> okay, we panic is right. Uh, you know, get to high ground, you know, do something. So, so he's, he's using these words that are telling us that for the Jews, this is what? Yeah, there's nothing they can do. Yeah. This powerful attack is just unstoppable from a human perspective. Would you agree with that? Okay. And then verse 17, he does it again, where he says, he does what then? He declares war against the remnant of this woman. So it, it, all of this, all of this is just indicative. He is trying to utterly, totally do what with Israel? Destroy them. Okay, and we've talked about all that that's involved in it. What does all of this tell you about Satan? Well, he hates God. What else would you say, just as we wrap up? He hates what? He hates us. What else? He's relentless. Oh, excellent. What else? He's powerful. Anything else does he tell you? He's deceptive. Anything else? What do you mean he's knowledgeable? Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Bob. Wait. Where does Satan get this knowledge that his time is short? Does he know the word of God? Has he quoted it? Okay. Does he believe it? To a degree, he believes it. Right? To a degree. But he's arrogant. Oh, excellent. That's the way to describe him. Okay. And what you were, I cut you off. You were going to say he knows, and then you were adding something. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing when you start thinking. He accuses us night and day. He will physically, uh, try physically, violently to destroy the Jews. He has knowledge of God's timetable. He is not omnipotent nor omnipresent. Thank God. Okay? So he is, put another word here. He's not this. He's limited. Okay. That's a good way. He can be overcome. Did you catch that in this text? Look, at, look down in, in verse 11. They overcame him. Who's the they that overcame him? Well, if you back up a few verses, who did overcome him? Who will overcome him in the battle? Michael and his angels, they're going to overcome him. Is that the they in verse 11? Okay, it's not, it's not the angels. Because if you go back to verse 10, he talks about the brethren and us. He uses personal pronouns. And it's not the angels that are talking. So people can overcome Satan. The question is... We need this answered. How? Uh, Time is up. (laughs) Thank you.